Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Gene Robinson. He's a director of the Carl R. Woese Institute for Genomic Biology. Uh, he is a Swanland Chair Professor of Entomology as well. And we're going to talk about uh, the Western honeybee and uh, some interesting research that he's doing in regards to it. So, Gene, thanks for coming. Sure. Thank you very much for having me, Richard. Yeah, if you would first tell me about the, the Carl Woese uh, Institute, you know, what's the mission of it? And then I want to talk to you about your bee research. Sure. The Carl R. Woese Institute for Genomic Biology is based on the concept of team science. So there are teams, multidisciplinary teams of investigators, along with their students and postdocs, and they uh, come together to address grand challenges in science and society that can be addressed in part by using genomics. So it's a very broad research portfolio from topics in human health, uh, in agriculture, in energy, technology, and fundamental science. And what unites everyone is the use of genomics to help address the grand challenge problems and a commitment to this multidisciplinary team science. Yeah, that's great. I'm sure you guys make more headway on problems than uh, you know, people that are extremely siloed. Yes, exactly. We, we're there to help scientists and engineers from across the campus come together and form productive teams. We provide them with facilities, support, and uh, a structure that, that makes it possible. Nice. Okay. Well, tell me about your uh, honeybee research. Is that something that you've always you know, been interested in, bees, or what's your background? Yeah, I've been interested in bees for my entire career. I've been here at Illinois for uh, about 30 years as director of the bee research uh, facility and had all, all of my uh, degrees and studies were uh, focused towards bees. I studied biology. I have a PhD in entomology on honeybee research. So I've been um, involved with bees for uh, now about 45 years. I discovered them very early when I was young fell in love with them hopelessly, um, wanted to work with them as soon as I was exposed to them. And uh, I've just been very fortunate to be able to do that, to uh, address really interesting questions that the honeybees pose uh, for us. Yeah, I was telling, I told my wife that I'm doing a series on bees and ants. And she, she thought she saw somewhere that physically it, it looks like it's incredibly difficult or impossible for like a, a bumblebee or a honeybee to fly. Is, have you ever looked at like the flight dynamics of bees or is it very difficult based on their construction and their wing type and span and all that for them to fly? No, we've not done any work on that. It's a, it's an interesting area. Bee flight has been very well studied and bumblebees are superb flyers. Honeybees are superb flyers. And so they do have the, the necessary wherewithal, the aerodynamics, as well as the physiology and mus- musculature to be able to fly very well. Honeybees fly about 12 miles an hour. Oh, wow. How does that compare to, uh, to birds and other creatures that fly? 
So, uh, you know, an insect is much smaller. And so the speed uh, would have to be adjusted based on body, body size. So they're strong flyers relative to their body size, but they do move more slowly in an absolute sense relative to, uh, to larger creatures like birds. So what aspect of bees are you focusing on lately? What are you studying? So my laboratory uh, over the years has been interested broadly in both the mechanisms and the evolution of social behavior, how social behavior has evolved. Uh, Honeybees represent one of the pinnacles of social life across the planet, across the animal world. One of the pinnacles, one of the most complex and intricate societies is the honeybees. Um, All of this is produced by a grass seed size brain. So we're interested in knowing how a tiny brain is able to produce such big things. The research is multidisciplinary. It draws on themes in behavior and evolution and neuroscience and increasingly over the years in genomics. So we use genomics to help understand both mechanisms and evolution of social behavior using the honeybee as our key model. We're interested in illuminating the life of the honeybee for its own sake. The honeybee is a very important organism on our planet, a so-called beneficial insect, one of the most beneficial insects because of its pollination activities. It produces some 15 billion, with a B, dollars worth of uh, contribution to our economy in terms of pollinating crops, fruits, vegetables, grains, and so forth. And in addition to being of interest for its own sake, the honeybee, the honeybee is also a model of social behavior, a model of what a tiny brain can produce and the elaborate social behavior and structural organization of the colony, communication between individuals, all can teach us lessons as a model for other societies. So we address a variety of questions related to those general themes. Have you uh, looked at the honeybee's microbiome? You know, they say in people, I guess in animals, you know, the, the gut microbiome could be a second brain. Maybe the honeybees have that in spades and that helps their you know, grass seed size brain do what it does. Yeah, that's a really good, uh, a good insight. We, in fact, have a relatively new project that's going on right now that is aimed to address that very question. We have published a little bit on the honeybee microbiome a few years ago and uh, showed that um, there are some very interesting differences between bees that do different jobs nurse bees working inside the hive and foragers out collecting nectar and pollen uh, do have some elements of their microbiome that are a little different, suggesting, as you say, that there might be a connection to behavior. So right now we have a project being led by postdoc Cassie Vernier that's uh, just looking at those questions. This is probably a stretch, but, you know, from what I've heard, like octopuses, uh, you know, their arms have enough sensory input ability that they're, I guess, brains into themselves. Is there any structure on a bee that could qualify as like a subbrain or a structure on it that, you know, has so much uh, sensibility adapted to it or, or allocated to it that it could be, uh, again, helping the brain of the bee? Not really. The bees have a lot of sensory structures all over their bodies. They have exquisite abilities to sense chemicals, to taste, touch, and so forth. And that's part of what makes their society work so well. But they do have a very well-developed centralized brain. We study the brain extensively and and it it really is the, you know, it serves as a traditional brain. Yeah. So what are bees really good at doing? Like when they, um, when they fly around and they're looking for 
for flowers to pollinate, how are they? How can they tell that a flower has been visited already versus not? Is it by color? Is it by uh, you know chemical tracks? I mean, how do they sense that for us? Yeah. Um, so bees, when they're foraging, use olfaction, so chemical sense, smelling, and they use vision. And uh, different species of flowers will signal different changes as their amount of nectar and pollen decreases. And bees are sensitive to those, so they can learn those very well to be able to forage more efficiently. Their visual system is shifted into the ultraviolet, so they can't see uh, distinguish red and black that well, but they can see into the ultraviolet, and um, many flowers reflect ultraviolet uh, signals that bees are able to use to be able to forage more efficiently. We've studied the behavior of foragers um, in terms of looking at individual differences in foraging ability and uh, see some very striking differences. So keeping with the theme of, you know, you think of an insect society as a kind of a bunch of automatons and uh, different individuals doing different jobs, sort of cadres of individuals working. But in fact, there's a, a surprising amount of individuality in the bee society. Um, not all bees are marching to the same orders. So we uh, put RFID tags on bees in order to track their coming and going. Um, so we have a, a reader at the entrance, sort of like an easy pass system on the highway, automatically reading uh, passages underneath. And when we did that, um, we saw that a minority of bees were acting as the major foragers in the colony. Uh, just over 15%, one five, just over 15% of the foragers were engaged in over 50%, 50% of the foraging, performed over 50% of the foraging. So this sounds perhaps like a story of elite individuals, but there's actually more to it. When we removed those individuals, some of the other foragers who were tootling along at a lower level of foraging activity could up their game. They were able to increase their foraging activity. So we see striking individual differences, but they don't seem to be fixed. They seem to be a part of how the colony is apportioning its, its labor to have some individuals working harder than others at any given point in time. So is there like colony level, I don't know if this is the right term, quorum sensing? Uh, okay, we have enough foragers. Uh, we need more of these drones. We need more of these or that. Or like, have you, have you taken a colony and taken out some of the bees that would care for the brood and see if uh, other ones get reallocated to those jobs? Yes, you're exactly right. There's a kind of a quorum sensing um, mechanism. And to step back, what that is saying is that honeybee colonies operate in a highly decentralized way. So the lights are on, but nobody's home. There's no single individual telling the other individuals what to do, but there is active decision-making, reallocation of labor, adaptive changes in the colony that uh, arise as a result of decentralized mechanisms, very similar to what you're describing as, uh, as quorum sensing. So we looked at this, uh, for example, you, you mentioned removing bees that are engaged in uh, nursing behavior and brood care. We actually, our first experiments were similar, but we removed foragers. 
And what we found, uh, as has been shown over a century ago, is that when you remove foragers, some of the young bees speed up their maturation, shift from working in the hive, which is what younger bees do. They shifted from working in the hive to foraging, which is what older bees do. We studied the mechanism. How is it, as you say, that these young bees were able to sense this? And what we discovered was that older bees produce a pheromone. That's a chemical communication signal. And this pheromone inhibits or delays the maturation of the young bees. So when there are uh, ample numbers of foragers in a colony, there's an ample amount of the pheromone, and that keeps the younger bees from growing up too fast. It keeps them on their normal path of growing up. But if there's a shortage of foragers, they're killed by a predator, they get lost in a storm, something happens to them, there's a shortage of this inhibitory pheromone. And so in the absence of that inhibition, some of the young bees grow up fast. So exactly as you described. That's really interesting. Has anyone tried um, when the queen is producing males and when she's producing other queens, from what I've heard, they take flight and they mate and they go off to other colonies. But has anyone tried to, you know, after the queen has produced these, remove the queen or kill her and then see if any of the, the produced queens will go back to that same hive and become the new queen? No one has ever done that. What happens is uh, a queen will have some eggs that are kind of destined to become uh, new queens when a colony is, uh, is getting crowded. Then the colony prepares to swarm, which is basically the way bees reproduce. One colony splits in two and uh, her, she'll have some daughters. The first one that emerges, the first queen daughter that emerges, will kill her rivals and will go out on a mating flight. And actually, the way it works in bees is that the mother queen bequeaths the colony to her daughter, and she goes out with the swarm with the, to try to make a living, a new, a, a new establish a new colony, make a new living under very risky conditions. So she leaves all of the resources of the hive to her daughter, and she herself embarks on the risky job of trying to start another colony. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Is there any way that you could, I don't know, get a sense of the, the hive mind intelligence? I mean, you're doing it already by seeing what the reallocation of jobs are when you remove certain, you said foragers from the hive, but I don't know, are there, are there people literally focused on just hive intelligence and hive mind and, you know, poking and prodding it and figuring out what it can know and what it can do? Yes. And the beauty of working with honeybees is you can address hive mind and the intelligence questions at different layers of biological organization, at different levels of biological organization. So uh, our brain can be uh, studied from uh, basically two perspectives, the perspective of neural activity, the activity of neurons, and gene activity, the activity of genes. In the case of the honeybee colony, it is um, operating, as you say, as a brain, and one can study those levels as one looks at the total output of the colony, which is kind of what we've been talking about so far. So we spend a lot of time studying at the gene level, and in particular at the level of gene networks, genes that are working together, that are involved in orchestrating uh, behavior, 
and in particular changes in behavior. It's a, a subfield that I uh, uh, labeled that I named uh, about 10 years ago, sociogenomics. And uh, this refers to our understanding uh, and our quest for understanding the relationship between genes and social behavior. And it starts from a particular framework, which is that prior to the advent of genomics, there was the sense of a one-way arrow between genes and behavior. Genes influence behavior. Changes in gene activity cause changes in neural activity that cause changes in behavior. So a causal arrow from genes to behavior. With genomics, we were able to show a second causal arrow. First causal arrow is still operative, but there's a second one, and that goes from behavior back to genes, from behavior to the genome from the environment to the genome. So let's go back to that uh, scenario I described before, where removing the foragers causes precocious maturation, causes some bees to grow up fast. When we looked at the activity of the genes in their brain, at all the genes that we could measure, so this is a subfield of genomics called transcriptomics, when we did a transcriptomic experiment, we showed that Bees that are growing up prematurely due to a lack of social inhibition show dramatic changes in brain gene activity. So in other words, the genome is very sensitive to the environment and can change its activity depending on changes in the environment. So sociogenomics has now given us a new framework for understanding the behavior, the relationship, excuse me, between genes and social behavior. And that is there are two causal arrows, one from gene to behavior, the other from behavior back to the genome. Both are operating and uh, provides a very rich context for exploring the relationship between genes and behavior. So we probe and prod the whole colony by looking at gene activity in individuals as a function of the social situations that they find themselves in. Uh, what about epigenetic marks? I would think that you know the different phenotypes, so the different types of bees in the colony would have very different epigenetic marks. Have you looked at that? And what does that tell you? Yes, we have looked at that, um, and it's, it is very important. There are very, various levels of epigenetic regulation uh, of the genome, and uh, we've looked at a few of them, and they are indeed playing important roles. In fact, one concept that kind of encompasses all of that is the concept of the gene regulatory network, the idea that d- genes interact with each other, they regulate each other's expression, it's each other's activities, Some genes affect the activity of thousands of other genes. Others affect the activity of just a few. And those activities themselves are uh, stabilized by epigenetic uh, changes that occur. And so all of that uh, kind of gets layered in to this concept of gene regulatory networks. Um, These are properties of the neurons of the cells inside the brain. And then so each honeybee brain has about a million uh, neurons. And so we have, you know, million of these gene regulatory networks that are operating together to orchestrate behavior. I don't know really what else to, uh, to ask you about this, but are there any particular experiments that, uh, that you're working on now or, you know, some of the people in the Institute are working on that you're excited to see the results of? I uh, we just published a paper uh, last week that that relates to this. 
and touches actually on a couple of themes that we've been talking about. So we mentioned uh, the queen and uh, replacement queens. It turns out that honeybee colonies will change queens for a couple of reasons, not only when the colony gets so big that it splits in two, there also can be sudden losses of a queen that queen dies for a variety of reasons, and the colony uh, will try to rear a replacement queen. Now, sometimes uh, that process of replacing a queen doesn't work. The colony tries to replace the queen, but they fail. And so uh, there then becomes a situation where there are no more baby bees, there are no more larvae that are the right age where they still can become a queen. The colony now is what's called hopelessly queenless. They cannot rear another queen. When that happens, some of the workers develop their ovaries and start to lay eggs. Now, this is a terminal process for this colony because while the workers can lay eggs, they cannot mate. So the eggs are not fertilized. They are only male eggs. Males, male eggs produce drones, as you noted at the beginning of our conversation. Drones do not work in the hive. All they do is mate uh, with virgin queens outside. So it is a terminal process. However, Um, It's a very interesting process, and we made some very interesting discoveries just recently. So it had been known that some workers develop uh, their ovaries and start to lay eggs. A couple of years ago, some work led by former graduate student Nick Nager showed that some bees with developed ovaries actually continue to forage and defend the hive. This was striking because the developed ovaries signified that they would become egg layers, which of course can be seen as a selfish behavior. They're laying eggs, personally reproducing, whereas the typical jobs of a worker bee, defending the hive, foraging, are quintessentially social and altruistic and cooperative behaviors. They're doing it for the hive, not for themselves. So we have a shift when a bee becomes a laying worker, she now is shifting to a selfish mode. But here we have some bees with developed ovaries also foraging and defending the hive. So what's going on there? This strange mix of cooperation and uh, competition and selfish behavior. So to make sure that uh, we didn't know, we hadn't seen very many of the bees actually laying eggs, those that were foraging and defending the hive. So we shifted and took advantage of new technology. And in a project that was led by former graduate student Burrell Jones, we perform detailed 24-7 behavioral monitoring on colonies that have laying workers using a new system of barcoding that was developed uh, by a former graduate student in the lab, Tim Gernot, computer science graduate student, to barcode bees using machine vision, machine learning to identify what they're doing. And when we did that, We found, indeed, as was suspected in the earlier uh, study, that there are bees that lay eggs that also will forage. We focused on two behaviors in this study, foraging and egg laying. However, we made this uh, additional discovery. There were actually three groups of bees. One group continued to forage, specialize on forage. They did not develop their ovaries. They did not lay eggs, just kind of as in a regular hive. So ignoring the precipitous change in social structure without the queen, the loss of the queen. Another group of bees 
indeed developed their ovaries and never engaged in foraging, sort of the quintessential selfish egg-laying bee. But this third group that I just mentioned before were there as well. They were doing interesting combination of both, had well-developed ovaries, were laying eggs, and they also foraged. And so we discovered that the colony uh, structure doesn't completely fall apart when the queen, when the colony becomes hopelessly queenless. It in fact shifts to a different form of social organization characterized by both specialists, foragers, and egg layers, and generalists, those that do both. So a very interesting shift. Now, no, that is interesting. It, you know, it makes me wonder if you put hives under different uh, conditions. You know, like you force them into a, a hive shape that's very unusual, or temperature differences, or other differences. You know, how the hive will accommodate and adapt to it. Yeah, bees are very flexible. They respond to uh, changing social conditions. Their genome is highly responsive. The change in gene activity, which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off, their gene regulatory networks are plastic. Their neurons are plastic. Their changes in brain structure. So uh, they are very attuned to their environment. Has anyone um, looked at you know ones that are used for pollination and followed them around and sampled them? Like you know, I guess almonds are the first thing in California that bees will pollinate, honeybees, and then they move on you know throughout the year. But has anyone looked like semi longitudinally, you know, before and after each type of crop is pollinated? How does the colony change? There are a couple of studies underway that look at this as a function of bee health because. Uh, Migratory beekeeping, uh, when you're moving colonies around, you're bringing them into uh, contact with colonies from other parts of the country. And there could be uh, stresses associated with that, pathogens from one part of the country to another. So there are people that are studying that. We have not engaged in those kinds of studies. We've looked at the uh, effects of a viral pathogen on the social behavior of bees using this barcode system that I described, but we've not tracked the bees across the country migratory. Well, getting back to the um, the foraging behavior, you said that bees see in UV, and that's one of the ways in which they can identify which flowers to go to. Um, what happens if they're in a greenhouse and UV is blocked by the you know the the glass? Does that change the picture for them? Does it change the foraging ability? Bees are adaptable, and most organisms, in fact, a sort of a key insight in sensory ecology is there are often redundant cues that allow organisms to navigate in the environment or find things in the environment using more than one type of sensory modality. So bees do very well in greenhouses. They pollinate, they're used for pollination. Bumblebees especially are used extensively to pollinate greenhouse tomatoes. Um, So they are able to do this even under those conditions. What else appears to be involved in foraging? You said they, they're seeing, I guess there's chemical sensing. You know, tell me a little bit about the chemical sensing side of it or other things that you've noticed that uh, these use as cues to tell whether they should go to a flower or not. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about the foundations of foraging, how bees are able to be so successful as foragers. So foraging is a very complicated task. Bees have to learn where they live so that when they go out and ramble and roam around the countryside, sometimes kilometers, square kilometers uh, around their beehive, they're able to visit many different flowers at great distances, and then, pardon the pun, make a beeline back to the entrance to their hive. 
Moreover, when they get back, if they have found really good food, a really profitable, really plentiful patch of flowers yielding a lot of nectar or a lot of pollen or both, they communicate about this by means of the famous dance language where they reenact in a miniaturized way their flight and they can give distance and direction coordinates using movements and sound relative to where they are, their, the, the location of the hive. So in other words, they have to be superb as navigators. They also have to know to do that. They have to know the sun's direction because they have a sun compass. And they, they learn all of this, have to have the, all of this information and abilities learned and honed before they become a forager. How do they do that? They take pre-foraging flights called orientation flights, where they fly around not collecting food, and they learn the location of the hive, learn the location of prominent landmarks learn the direction that the sun is traveling in so that they can kind of hook up their sun compass. And they do this in a series of flights. We looked at individually identifiable bees and tracked their flights using harmonic radar to see where they go and what those flights look like. And we made a couple of very interesting observations. First of all, the bees will take short flights that get longer and longer, and they kind of sample the space around the hive. The first flight, they might go to the east. The next flight, they might go to the west. And the next flight, they might go to the south. So they're sampling the environment. They're building up their cognitive map. They're building up their representation of space in their brain to provide them with the wherewithal so that when they do graduate from working in the hive, to becoming a forager, they've got what it takes. Now, speaking of this graduation, quote, graduation process, we, as I said, marked these bees as individuals. And we found that uh, most bees take between seven and 17 flights, orientation flights, prior to becoming a forager. But some bees took as few as just a couple of flights, and some took way more than 17 raising some very interesting questions about individual variation. Are those individuals that took just a couple of flights Einstein bees? They got it quickly. They really learned everything they needed to learn to become a great forager. Or were those bees taking shortcuts and not spending the time that they needed to spend in order to master what they needed for foraging? We don't know the answer to those, but uh, this, this level of individual variation is very intriguing. And as we uh, increase our technological abilities to track individuals, I think we'll be seeing a lot more interesting results along these lines. So you'll see that the colony as a whole will, again, look one way, look another way, and they map out their space successively over time. Um, what's the end state of a mapping? Like if they're, how long does it take them to really map out an area where they, they know where they're going and how far is that radius and what, like, what does it look like? Yeah, we don't know. We just know that they take, uh, on average, between 7 and 17 flights before they do graduate and become a forager. So we assume that, in general, that's what it takes for them to uh, to master the, the tasks. That's what it takes for them to learn the landmarks. That's what it takes for them to uh, to learn the direction of the sun. And I would imagine it varies depending on the spatial environment. The more complex an environment is, then um, the longer it might take. 
interesting. How far do they go after a while? You know, if you see a mature spot they've been in for a while, like how far will uh, bees tend to go? So bees are no dummies. If they can find food close by to the hive, say a couple hundred meters away, a half a kilometer away, uh, if there's a plentiful set of trees or a field, agricultural field or a meadow of flowers, they'll go there because uh, the shorter the distance, then uh, the less wear and tear, the less energy they have to spend. So they will prefer that. However, if they have to, they can go kilometers away from the hive. Um, to procure the food. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. Very good, Gene. What's the uh, the best way for people to find out more about uh, you know the Carl Woese Institute and then uh, your work in particular? Where can they go? Well, the Carl Woese Institute uh, has a uh, website, so it's igb.illinois.edu. Okay, very not, good. Not too high, right? And then my lab uh, also has a website that is lab lab dot igb dot illinois dot edu slash robinson slash okay very good well gene it's been a good call and and thank you for coming i appreciate it sure my pleasure i enjoyed speaking with you if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes you've been listening to the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.